Edith lifted her hands to cover her face. The king and I both averted our eyes, neither of us able to offer her the privacy she deserved. When she lowered her hands, she had regained her composure, mostly. Her voice was only slightly ragged. Have you considered, Jen, even once, that you might achieve your goals with the minimum damage to yourself and without the maximum amount of distress to those around you? If Jen had ever considered that, I think this story would be a lot shorter. <laughs> Welcome back, warrior priests. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. It's June 12th, 2022. I was about to say 2020 again there. 20, eternal 2020. So we're moving on. And today we are discussing <laughs> part two, chapter four, yes, of Return of the Thief. It gets tough keeping track, guys. It does. <laughs> it shouldn't, because we write it down. <laughs> yep, then we press record and we're winging it. Yet another, it was Jen's plan all along situation. <laughs> it was you. If there's ever, like, there's a mysterious person who's behind this mysterious thing, it's Jen. It's, yep. Je it's, Je it's Jen every time. Yeah. He is causing his own problems on purpose. Once again, this gets a little bit... Like, I mostly understand it, but it's it, do it does get a little bit too convoluted for me. You gotta, let's walk through this. Walk me through this. So, Therospedes. Yes. Was being paid. Yes. By someone. <laughs> which is a thing that I had forgotten. I wasn't really paying attention to that. Like, I knew that Cleon and Therospedes were in cahoots and they were opposing Jen in support of Helen, but I don't think I quite registered on either times that I was reading this that there was money involved that was coming from somewhere. I don't know if we knew that before this chapter. Maybe we didn't. I don't Maybe think we did. Maybe that's brand new information. I think we only knew that Clean and Therospedes were the ones causing trouble. And then if you remember back to Queen of Atolia, you remember Therospedes was already taking money from Atolia mm -hmm. a few books ago, so you could like Kind of make that connection, but I don't know if I don't know if we knew that. So, so like literally, Jen like put a hit out on himself. <laughs> <laughs> so he was doing that to try and get people to support Edis because too many people would prefer a man, even Jen, to be ruling Edis instead of Helen. Mm -hmm. So he needed to figure out a way that he could cement her both authority. her power and his power in his own arena. So they had to both accept her as the indisputable queen and him as Annex. And the only way that he could think to do that was to be beaten to a pulp in public <laughs> by his own father. But don't aren't those conflicting goals? Because now... <laughs> Her authority really has been diminished since he's replacing her. Isn't that why she's crying here? Because, I mean, you know, like she's... Maybe. I think she didn't want him to get beaten to a pulp. Yes. But she's also... He's apologizing and she says, I've always known I would be the last Edith. So in this conversation between the two of them, he was saying, I did it so they... Like, if we hadn't done this, if I hadn't sent these agitators, whatever... To make them rally around you, they would have 
called you Aegea and then called you Sunia and eroded your power and then they would have quote forgotten unquote that you would ever had any power mm-hmm. but now that he's in charge her power as long as 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 well as Sunus's and Irene's is diminished just in a different way that unites people mm-hmm. maybe she's saying my power would inevitably have been diminished yeah, anyway I think that was that was how I interpreted so when Edith took the throne, she did not have this trial. What do you think about that? Do you think this is another gender thing, which is all I can assume? I think that's gender. It yeah. has to be gender. Right? Because it's so... I mean, God, why do they have this? Why? Who came up with this? It's literally just seeing how long can he last. You know, we don't even know what the criteria is yeah, in this fight, did, actually. This it doesn't was even a tell win, us. I guess. Yeah, it says it was, <laughs> but it says, well, he, he didn't win all the matches. And I have the quote written down. What does it say? It says, uh, this is a trial to endure. Yeah. So, like, if he can just make it to the total and complete limits of his physical strength, then they let him be king? I don't know. You can be king, but we have to be able to hit you with a stick a bunch of times first. Because that's how we know you're a tough guy. That's how we know you're a real man. Yeah, what would what would losing look like? Is it is yeah. it a, Do they win a specific number of bouts? They had 12 matches against younger men who would be following him forever. Do you lose if you quit before a specific it, time? I guess. But or if you quit, die, I guess. I, that's true. So I kept thinking how Very easy true. it would be for someone to get killed yeah in the, like in you the, can in the 12th if, match i don't care if it's a wooden sword if you hit someone in the head really hard they're done that's the end and it's established that every person here is hitting with their max amount of strength yeah and it is i mean it's a really cool contrast between the end of king of atolia because the atolians think that they're so tough yeah right and so well trained and jen just wipes the floor with them and then this the adesians like he he cannot win. Yeah. It's lucky 13, or he fights 13 people at all. So what what does it mean, Noel, that the Minister of War is the one who's trying him, and that it's super violent, and then the aftermath is super gentle? Considering everything we've said about his father in, like, the last episode, and... Yeah, he's literally why cradling him like a child at yeah. the end, and then he picks him up and he carries him to bed. But to get him established in this position requires supreme and utter violence that he's wrecking on his own son. Yeah. And this Instead is the thing of letting they someone have else to do. do it. And it's clearly like they both know that this is what they have to do. And the mm. Minister of War has decided to do it himself. He's like, it couldn't be Ornon. Yeah. Which which they say is for practical reasons, like, oh, it wouldn't be the contest if it was It would be too easy. Yeah. It would be too easy. But yeah, is it that he for is, some reason he wants to do it himself? And maybe is that it's the, really like is that sacrifice part of the giving your all component? You know what I mean? Like even yeah, like, like the like emotional be no level accusations of favoritism. You know, right? Because I'm gonna go all out so that nobody will even be able to imagine saying that I'm favoring you. Yeah, because I'm gonna destroy you. But also maybe he trusts himself not to accidentally kill Jen in a way that he doesn't trust another person. But maybe that doesn't make sense as a choice because I do think that that Jen would have found it much easier to beat Ormond. Mm. I don't know. Just reading this whole scene, 
just was making me think you have to be so dedicated to the cause that you're perpetuating this violence for like this is so brutal and like yeah. how how is this connected to what the minister of war wants for him slash has wanted for him in the past mm -hmm. is it all still about just we're doing this to unite the country for the mead threat or is it also i don't know what other layers are still under that mm -hmm. you know i don't have answers i'm just you've got people who care about each other and they need to accomplish something that cements their power. And in order to do that, they enact violence on each other, which is sometimes like agreed upon. And this just just underlines the absurdity of yeah, and they, of violence as a tool to get things like war. And they think why? it's absurd. Like yeah. Jen calls it this asinine business. Yeah. Which, it you know, cultural that Cleon, Cleon is talking like an actor in a yeah. bad play. And like, everyone's embarrassed <laughs> by Cleon. Like, this is all, it's all proceeding according to a script. Right, that nobody's invested in. Or not not that they're not invested, but, like, yeah, they're doing it because they have to, not because they want to. Jen feels like this is the only way. Right, and he couldn't find another way, is what he says. Yeah. And this is very specifically Adesians. The Atolians are horrified by yes. this. And the Adesians have to, like, circle them and stop them from intervening. Mm -hmm. And, and fight them to stop yeah. them intervening. And it doesn't seem to have been a thing that the Atolians or the Sinesians were previously aware of. Yeah. And there's a warrior priest. There are warrior priests, apparently, yeah, in Edis. That's kind of cool. That's pretty cool. It's pretty badass. <laughs> Wonder what they've been up to this whole time. Yeah. Ferris recognizes that this guy is a warrior priest because he has a zigzagging tattoo on his face. Yeah. And I wanted to bring up... At the beginning of the chapter, Jen snaps at Ion about his hair. Because Ion says, like, oh, it would be great if you grew it long. And Jen says, teach me how to braid it with one hand, Ion, and I will grow it to my knees. Because he's pissed. Because he wants long hair. But not if he can't braid it himself, mm -hmm. which he can't because he has only one hand. And the Magus says, still wishing for your lost hand back, Jen. He says, I miss it. But if I hadn't lost the hand, I'd be another person entirely by now. Wishing for the hand back would be like wishing the man I already am to be replaced by some stranger. It would be wishing my own self out of existence, and who would want that? Mm -hmm. And this is such a rare and important idea. I know we've talked before about how the positivity with which disability is portrayed in this series is, I feel, just unparalleled. Yeah. And this specific idea right here, it's just, first of all, like, so good and so accurate and so true in my own personal findings, but also, like, it's the opposite of the narratives that we get about disability from from other sources in print and literature and I don't know from from non-disabled people generally is the idea that people can get battered with is that oh disability is something inherently wrong with you that needs to be fixed mm -hmm. it's something negative it's something that should not be a part of you you know like there's all this 
debate over person first language versus identity first language, which is saying, you know, a person with a disability versus saying a disabled person. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is an identity first perspective that we don't see very often at all in literature or anywhere else really. And I just really appreciated this. Yeah. And the fact that his feelings are so complex. Yeah. Like this has been difficult for him. It continues to be difficult for him. It will always be difficult for him, but it also has made him the person that he is. Mm -hmm. And so he can't wish it away. The themes in the story about disability are part of larger themes about change or the themes about change in the story are kind of so they sort of all come back to disability like everything about mm-hmm. like just changes in your life that can be devastating are also that's what makes you alive yeah that's what makes you a person yeah I uh, I listened to the audiobook version of this chapter instead of reading it. And this was the first time I had listened to the uh, Return of the Thief, any, any part of that audiobook. And uh, Scott West, the voice actor, does Scottish accents for the Edesians. That's and so fun. Yeah, Scott West, he sounds to me like he has... An English accent, which is what he, he uses for the general narration and for the Aetolian accents. Mm-hmm. So Jen was speaking with an English accent. But at one point during the trial, it says that one of the Edesians says something just incomprehensible. Yeah. Like his accent is so thick. And then Jen says something back that's equally incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. I've always imagined them kind of having Yorkshire accents for no reason at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the gift, I've always said it. Hamie Athus's gift. Just, I don't know why I chose to pronounce it that way, but Steve West pronounces it rhyming with Hermione's gifts. It's Hamiathes gifts. Hamiathes? Yeah. Oh. And like, that could not be more different than how I say it. <laughs> and the Minister of War, like, stepping on Jen's hand. Yeah. That's so oh. intense. Literally and metaphorically. Yeah. Portelaus. Oh my god, I know. He shows up. He's like, what is going on? I leave for five minutes. Ferris thought Tolaeus was about to rip someone's head off. His veins are showing. And when uh, when there's that short brawl between the Edesians and Sinesians, Ferris jumps in to try and help the king, bites Aulus, who is on Ferris' duty. Aulus is, like, very respectful towards Ferris. Yeah. Which is really nice. And everybody else, nobody else is taking him seriously, laughing, saying he can't give his word. It doesn't matter what he thinks. And Alice asks for his word anyway and treats him like, you know, I I recognize you're a threat. Yeah. Because he is. But also, he's very compassionate when Ferris is upset. And this is a lot for Ferris to witness. Yeah. He throws up. Yeah. I'm really interested in... What happens now between your father and your queen? Well, he already hates her because she cut off my hand. Now the feeling is mutual. So, so, you intend to separate them for the entirety of your reign? The king shifted uncomfortably, looking for a softer spot on his mattress before he confessed. I've arranged for them to both be in the garden at the same time, entirely alone. We'll see which one leaves alive. You are joking. Only about one of them leaving alive. That might kill each other. Jen. 
Helen, you know how it will go. They will agree, like people always do, that it's all my fault. He shifted painfully again. Not finding a better spot, he gave up with a sigh. They are adults. They know what is at stake. They will sit next to each other on a bench without speaking until the palace bells ring the hour, and when they get up, the whole matter will be finished. They will embark on a long relationship of mutual respect and admiration and lecturing me. <laughs> we never really get any more insight into whether or not this truly did come to pass like he thinks it will, but I think it's probably a pretty safe assumption. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think he knows these he people knows them very so well. well. Yeah. And when she decides to name their son after his father at the end of the book, it's nice to think that it's not just for him that she came to respect Hector, too. Right, yeah. And it is all Jen's fault. It is. Imagine you're about to go to war against this empire that makes you look like a puny insect. And you're like, you know what we need to do right now? You know what I think is really important? I think we need to find our guy that's going to lead us and hit him a bunch of times with sticks. And just almost kill him. Just an inch just from death. Almost. <laughs> Get most of the way there and then stop. Just as some practice. Then we're going to pull back. We'll pull back. It'll be really good for all of us. It'll be really healing. It's going to be a bonding experience. <laughs> and then we'll be able to do this war right. This is, the, this is their pep rally. You, you also get the vibe in this chapter that, you know, the attendants are concerned about Jen because he's the king, but also because they like him. What does it mean for this to be a book about adults that's from the perspective of a child? The characters who are not Ferris are, at this point, unequivocally adults. Mm -hmm. Like, you can say in, in the, the Thief and the Queen of Atolia and Conspiracy of Kings that we're talking about, like, a coming-of-age sort of situation, but there, I mean... Jen says in this chapter, my father and Irene will work out their differences because they're adults. They know what's at stake. But we're looking at all of it through Ferris's eyes now. You know, he's definitely the youngest. Mm -hmm. You could say, like, he's, he's not a teen. Yeah. He's... He goes out of his way to narrate that, you know, in different parts of the book. I did not even understand this at that time. Because I was too young. Yeah. I don't think I have an answer. Yeah, me neither. But that is something very important to bring up. And it's, it's interesting, especially in the narration of this chapter, particularly when you ask that question, because we see, you know, he narrates the events, specifically what the adults are doing, and his own reaction to it. He's obviously upset. He's scared. He's in the middle of a fight, he throws up. Mm -hmm. But we kind of have that distance that you mentioned before when you can almost forget that he's narrating. Yeah, sometimes I do. Sometimes. It's, it's interesting with this chapter's narration that, like, you would think you have a child narrating the events that the adults are going through, and that's one thing. Or you have him also saying, like, oh, this is what I was thinking and feeling. This is, this is my own part of it. But we, we don't really get that either. It's like just showing that he throws up and that he wants to help. But mm -hmm. he doesn't go into that experience at all. You know what I mean? It's like an afterthought that he was involved. 
Yeah. Well, he he kind of thinks of himself as this historical chronicler. Right. And then he he can't help but remember how he felt. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was also formative for him. Yeah. Clearly. But also, he's writing the book as an adult. So he, it's really an adult writing the remembered perspective of a child True. on adults' events. That is also important. Because I'm thinking, you know, I was I was about to say, like, maybe his, his child's narration of a war takes a step back from it and makes it all seem a little bit more absurd. But no, remembering later on, he has an adult's perspective and reasoning on why war is absurd. Yeah. Not a child's. And there's a lot of, like you mentioned before, I didn't understand this at the time. Yeah. He remembers, I didn't know what was going on, but now he 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 knows. Yeah, and then he will put in a separate, specific adult explanation paragraph of, yeah. like, this was... You know, he is both the youngest perspective character and the oldest. Yeah, we don't know how old he is, but he's he's definitely barren. I mean, a, he's, like, the Baron, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he's I, I picture adult. him writing from, like... The 30s, his 30s or something. Yeah, or maybe even middle age. And, like, having a child narrator, like, I guess for practical purposes, it does let him be places that adults might not. Like, he's small enough to slip behind the lemon tree in the in the council room so he can overhear this conversation. So, like, it, it serves some practical purposes, too, I guess. Yeah, and, like, the factor of his youth and the factor of disability, I think, both combine to make him invisible in that mm-hmm. way. In a way that he may not be as an adult. I assume not, because he'll also be very politically powerful as an adult anyway. Yeah, and so people will think differently about him. I had one little thing I wanted to mention from last chapter that I did slip in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the king and the queen are having that huge fight about Jen having stolen from his god, uh, and all the attendants are, like, listening in fear, uh, Ferris includes a little bit about the queen's attendants and says, uh, like, oh, they were all so disappointed when they heard the queen throw the coffee pot because Luria had wanted the coffee pot as a gift because the queen gives the attendants gifts from her personal possessions on important occasions and Luria was about to get married. Right. And they heard her throw the jet, throw the, they, and they heard her throw the dressing table and Gloria was like, ooh. <laughs> so that just got me thinking, you know, we, we've kind of talked before about we don't get too much of the queen's attendants, but we do get much more of them through Ferris's eyes in this yeah. book than we have before, kind of, which is nice. So that was, that was another little and they're, Little they're, detail. they're much less alarmed about <laughs> the breaking of things. They're just like, God oh, darn, I wanted that. Yeah. That's chapter four. Next time, a miracle. Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. And thank you for everyone waiting patiently to hear us answer your messages, which we haven't answered in a long time. We're doing them. We're doing them today. Yes. <laughs> We love it when you send in things. Yeah, and it makes us very happy. Yes, we're very sorry to not answer them quickly. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an Amateur Embroidered Production. Find us on iTunes, 
Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available. to consider.